So Dharma and consumerism is feels loaded already, you know. Um, Dharma, good consumerism. We all have we all have judgments about it already going in, don't we? We have we either think it's bad or you know we don't want to be part of that somehow. Um, consumer and and sometimes there's there's a range of meanings of the term that that get all mushed together. Um, so I thought I'd just read a couple. I just went on the web and opened a dictionary and copied some definitions just because just for a little clarity at the start to consume to destroy or expend by use to use up to eat or drink up to devour to destroy as by decomposition or burning like fire consumed the forest to spend wastefully use up but it's also a theory an economic theory you know, the notion that the ever-expanding consumption of goods is good for the economy. You know, we buy stuff and it creates jobs for people to make stuff, and then we got a lot of stuff. Um, but I think that there's a tendency to relate to the notion of consumerism with judgment. It's In, in fact, it's almost, it's difficult um, to not be judgmental. Any, anybody here feel neutral about consumerism? You know, and we don't like it. And yet, we are um, we're so embedded in it that it's impossible to separate ourselves from it. Um, and so often, that fact generates aversion in us to it, and then maybe self-judgment when we catch ourselves browsing catalogs with for no particular reason. Anybody ever, you know, that kind of exercise? Um, you know, our economy is, is described as a consumer economy, one where we are encouraged to uh, buy things. We don't produce substantial stuff. I mean, most of us have, have jobs, most of the way we work, we have jobs that are very narrow in focus. You know, what we produce is, and we wouldn't be doing them, most of us, if it weren't for the money that they pay us. So we're actually producing money to go out and assemble a lifestyle, somehow. You know? So we're not separate from this consumer economy. Um, and to recognize that we're not separate is sort of, in, in a way, it's the essence of recognizing emptiness, or anatta. Because it means that we are encultured by, we've been cultured by, and cannot be separated from, we aren't independent from, the society in which we live. Now we're deeply conditioned by the process of consuming. Anybody not buy anything today? I mean, we buy stuff constantly, you know, um, gas and food, I mean, and, and um, you know, it's, it's uh, we're looking for satisfaction in a way that the culture itself, by holding up things that say, buy me, and we, we can't help but respond 
either with aversion or with, that would be cool. Um, but, and, and, and we sort of, isn't there a sense that, you know, we, we buy something and make us happy. We chase after what we want and it will make us happy. We'll find happiness. This is the, the core delusion that the Buddha pointed, pointed out, the notion that we can make ourselves happy by getting what we want. Sort of how we navigate life, speaking personally anyway. Um, and how, how, as you know, Dr. Phil might say, how's, it, how's that working for you? <laughs> but we can't separate ourselves um, from the consumption of not just material goods, but experience. You know, um, we, we go out and we spend money on a good time, uh, on f food, you know, uh, designer food, you know, um, travel, experience. Travel, of course, doesn't include adventure, really, because adventure includes the possibility of failure, like you're actually at risk. Something could happen. Um, so we go and we consume. I'm taking my granddaughter to New York in a couple of months. It's going to be, in a couple of weeks, it's going to be really fun. We'll spend five days there, just the two of us. But, you know, it's not going to be like living in New York. We're going to see, you know, so almost like going to Disneyland. You know? There's, where do we look for, um, where do we look for our identities? We consume our, our, our identities. We accumulate around us a collection, a constellation of goods and, and thoughts in our mind. Now, most of us aren't um, creating our philosophy. We read and we go, oh, right, right? And then we, oh, good idea or bad idea. You know, we interact with the, with the opinions and views that are out there in the world. Um, we consume our information. Um, and we, we customize our identities. Anybody here on a Hummer? If you did, you probably wouldn't put your hand up. Because, you know, our uh, you know, identities, uh, you know, certain, certain kinds of things are not appropriate. But for some people, Having a, um, you know, a high-end Porsche might be something, I mean, it might not be a matter of negative judgment, but we have, you know, what the, the clothes we wear, we choose from among an array of things. It's not like Hen with Henry Ford where we said, you can have whatever color you want as long as it's black. Well, you know, we're talking about his cars, but now we can have anything. If you look at, at pictures of, uh, you know, when I was growing up or before in the 30s, kids wore white, plain white shirts. Nobody wears a plain white t-shirt anymore, almost. You know, I mean, there, there was a very, now we're all over the board in terms of color and style. We can, we can create ourselves in whatever way we want. We consume or accumulate um, our identities. No, by purchasing. And it's not, it's not, this isn't a judgment. I'm not making a judgment. The idea here 
is to see clearly just how we relate to the society we live in and to the kinds of things that it inspires us to do. Because we can't be free if we're not clear. And if we're only reacting to it, you know, no, yuck, or, oh, what a great idea, I think I'm going to go get one of those. Well, you know, we're just, whatever comes up, uh, we wind up chasing after. We can't avoid being embedded. And, and, and really deeply, this is something, I, I, I'm not sure where it's from because I copied one page and it says introduction. So I'm not sure what it's an introduction to. But it's, it, it's, um, you know, just read this, is about coffee. What exactly does global consumption look like on the ground? Let's take an example that illustrates the far-reaching impacts of North American consumption, coffee. Say the average person drinks two cups a day. Is that a couple cups a day? Most of you? Some of you? A year's worth of coffee is about 18 pounds of beans per year, which requires 12 coffee trees along with 11 pounds of fertilizer and pesticides. In the processing, 40 pounds of coffee pulp are released into rivers, consuming life-supporting oxygen as they decompose. The beans travel to the United States and are roasted using natural gas. After being packed in multi-layer bags, they're shipped by trucks, getting six miles to the gallon, to a regional warehouse. Coffee is the second leading export crop in the world after oil and is the second largest source of foreign income for developing nations. What about other items on our breakfast table? Orange juice from Brazil, grapes from Chile, apples from New Zealand, cocoa from Malaysia, bananas from Costa Rica, all of these appear at the supermarket with production and shipping costs virtually invisible. An average bite of American food travels more than 1,200 miles from field to fork. Food processing, packaging, distribution, and storage in the United States use 17% of all energy consumption, and food packaging makes up to 20% of municipal solid waste, and on and on and on. We're not separate from this. We're in the midst of this. You know, we drive a car. You know, anybody here not drive a car as a matter of principle? Okay, I mean, we're, we're not separate from it. Not separate from, there's no boundary. And so I'd like to suggest that we take a look at our experience in our society this way as if there were no boundaries between our inner life and the outer world. Because really, any, any of those boundaries are, are artificial. They're things that we, they're just constructs that we make up. Um, we see events, we see items, we want them or don't want them, or are indifferent to them. We, we're reactive to our environment. We're alive, you know, this is not bad. Um, but our environment is, is constantly saying, buy me, or drink me, or, you know. Um, and so, and not only that, if you don't buy me or drink me, well, you know, you're going to be missing out. You don't get the new iPhone, you're going to be missing out. You don't have the iPad yet, you don't use email. Oh my gosh, you're really, not on Facebook. Or whatever, you're missing out. And so we all experience this sense of lack, the sense of not enough. Maybe not all of us. Anybody here feeling fully content? 
yeah, we're, I guess we all are feeling a little bit like, you know, something, you know, we need something else, you know. Um, this is a great laboratory. We, ourselves, are a great laboratory for studying um, the process of desire. You know, the tendency to want is not bad. I mean, it, we, we tend to judge it because, you know, we, we, second noble truth, got to abandon it, you know, desire and wanting. You know, I have a, a, a good friend who uh, uh, is, has came up with the notion of, for her kids, for teaching her kids, the notion of the want monster. So her four-year-old and her four-year-old and her six-year-old have learned to recognize the want monster when it shows, well, it, when it's pointed out, they recognize it. Um, it's not bad, you know, the desire to be, uh, to, to, for pleasant experience in terms of evolutionary sense, if you didn't care, you know, you're less likely to be able to pass on your genes, you know. Um, if you weren't alert to danger, if, if, if threat didn't, wasn't, wasn't an issue, we, you know, we probably would be less likely to pass on our genes. So when there are <coughs> stories of danger show up, it gets our attention. So there's, there's, there's our relationship to, you know, the world that we experience, this consumer world saying, buy me, buy me, and we can watch how this works. It's just a great place, and I'm going to come back to this um, several times, because we are our own laboratory here. When, if you can imagine something that you want badly, you can actually take a look at how you conceive of it, so you've got this mental thought about it. There's going to be some physicality about it. Sometimes there's going to be enough tightness or tingling or something in the body. I mean, it's just, you know, really alert. Just watch how this works. Watch how we talk to ourselves about the things that we want. You know. I, um, this last week I, I was, uh, spent a few days sitting a couple of chairs away from a friend who also had an iPad and we were taking notes on this iPad on the classes that were going on. But over the course of the week, both of us were complaining about using this as a note-taking device and how really we needed a MacBook Air. <laughs> yeah. um, and you know, it sounds kind of cute. On the other hand, after I left the, the uh, retreat I went into, I was in New York City, and I better believe I was at the Apple store checking out. <laughs> the, the, I mean, you know, you follow your, and we talk to your, you talk to yourself about it. Now watch how desire works. I really need this, you know, and I can afford it. And, you know, I mean, <coughs> is that right speech? In, you know, internal right speech. Is that right speech? I have no idea. Our consumer culture cultures tanha. Tanha is the um, 
the specific Pali word that is used in the, for the second noble truth, which is that the origin of, of our suffering is in Tanha. And this culture cultures it in us. It socializes us in ways that we all, are we looking for a better bargain, right? We like to uh, um, look for the best deal, the most for the least, right? But we do it, and we think, well, of course, everybody does. But it's, it's done here differently, I think. Any of you call up Amazon and try to bargain with them over the best book isn't worth $10. You know, I read the first chapter, but it is worth $7. i will give you, anybody do that? No, but, you know, culturally, we, we do it differently. Than, I mean, it's, we, but we take it as natural. So we don't even notice what we're doing. We don't even notice what we're doing. Um, And, 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 we tend, and we tend to judge it so quickly. Um, this is not about good or bad. It's just about recognizing how, how it works. Because we all contain the seeds of greed in us. We don't like to think of ourselves as greedy. I won't ask you to put up your hand if you think of yourself as greedy. We don't like to think of ourselves as greedy. We like to think of ourselves, right, as generous and kind and thoughtful. And, but we all have that, those seeds in us. The Buddha pointed that out because of the delusion that we can, we can make ourselves happy by getting what we want. Um, and getting what we want, it's just great. Getting what we want includes getting other people to do what we want, to think the way we want to vote the way we want. Does um, getting what we want include uh, the peace of mind that's supposed to come with enlightenment? And get some of that? As Dave Letterman might say, cut me a slice of that. We're going to get enlightened, get peaceful. Are we practicing? Is there some of that in there? I'm not, this isn't judgmental, this is exploratory. So we can see more clearly just how we work. Um, any, what activities do you engage in um, that doesn't aim, aim at the attainment of some satisfaction? It's, it's just, it's natural. It's habitual. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just that it, it tends to cause suffering. You know? And so we wind up, it's like, you know, looking for peace in all the wrong places. Um, you know, the first, the first noble truth is that satisfaction is not in the cards. And, and the message of our culture is, Satisfaction is in the, the next thing that you buy or avail yourself of. And we, and you know, we even, we joke about it. I was looking, I get, any of you get the Hammaker Schlemmer catalog? The, the most recent one has a, I looked at the cover and it's got, I, I love catalog shopping, you know, it's, it's, free-floating desire. You want something. I remember walking through a mall 
my wife and I were walking through, through the Fairfield Mall and we were behind two young girls and one of them said to the other, I know I want something, I just don't know what it is. <laughs> you know, we're sort of doing that with the, with the catalog, you know. You say, look, it's desire, looking for something to land on. And you can almost always find something. Well, the cover of this month's hammock, it, I, it has to be a, funny. It's, it's got a, a, a large, a 20-foot triceratops dinosaur. And I thought, oh, you know, sort of an FAO Schwartz kind of thing, you know. Um, but then you turn to the inside, because, you know, my granddaughter was visiting, and I thought I'd point it out to her. Well, this was, the, this was a one-of-a-kind item. I think it was in the Field Museum, and it was a, a dinosaur that w had sensors so that it knew when you came, and it would turn to face you, and then it would make noises and respond to you in different ways, and it was $350,000. So I it's a, that I can't believe they're expecting any, so it's got to be a joke, you know, I think. Or maybe somebody on the staff. Um, but looking for our satisfaction in, in things external. If we look for our satisfaction in things external, then we're at the mercy of them. There's no freedom anywhere. If we depend on external... No. And, but we just are usually enthralled by the objects of our desire. We're captivated by them. Achan Junian says it's like a moth and a flame. The moth only sees the flame. The flame is bright. Everything else is dark. And what it doesn't see is its own compulsion to fly, it, can't, it doesn't see its own impulse. And so we're surrounded by, you know, the objects of our consumer culture, our popular culture, and we don't even see our own reactivity to them. We just, it's natural, it happens very fast. Um, hmm. We can, you know, we, we make snide comments about it. Anybody not make snide comments about our consumer society and the kinds of things, you know, the junk? I, uh, you know, <laughs> it's hard not to, because some of it's just painful. I remember looking at this little piece of plastic that was supposed to be a brownie, and then you look on the bottom, it says made in China, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what do those people think? Who they think they're making this for, you know? I don't even want to talk about what it looked like, and they, you know, they're expecting to sell it here, and they did, <laughs> as it turned out. Planned obsolescence, you know. Always something new, something to avoid boredom. You get bored, we travel. We get, you know, it's why meditation is so. Um, Countercultural, in a way, you know, it's upstream in a way. Um, it's not like we don't, like there's no payoff. Now the Buddha said there there are a few kinds of there are just a, the three kinds of tanha, three kinds of this craving, that that is the source of our suffering. The first one is. Uh, 
the desire for pleasant experience, for sensual experience. And the desire for sensual experience isn't just the desire to turn the thermometer up. It's not just physical, you know, it's not just to be physically comfortable. I think that it's very deeply, you know, the Buddha said there are six sense doors. The sixth is the, is the mind as a sense door, the knowing part. Um, I think it's really deeply embedded there too. We like stories with happy endings. Anybody go to the movies to see, to be, become miserable? You know, I, I guess I'm talking about my granddaughter again. I took her to see Harry Potter yesterday. And, you know, I, I sort of hadn't been following the movies all along, but she has. And, um, you know, I, as, so I was sort of a little bit, you know, I was watching it more than being enthralled by it. And I realized how important the happy ending was, the resolution and the, you know, the satisfaction of that. Um, we'd like our life to be like, like fiction, somehow. We like, you know, pleasant, pleasant, sensual, mental experience. People should agree. People should get along. Should, should, should. We have ideas about the way things should be. We consume our morality. How should things be? How should we be? And we, you know, we look to uh, um, uh, blogs. Go to Psychology Today and look at the blogs. You know what the what the blogs that are the most read and the most highlighted about how to, you know, sustain a relationship, how to improve your situation on the job, how to, you know, you know, just, we're going to consume that information. We're going to look for, for that. All oh, when the Buddha says satisfaction is not in the cards. It's not that there's not a payoff. There is a payoff. Sometimes we get what we want. And we, and it feels good, right? You know. We can all think of, you know, if you want to generate addictive behavior in laboratory animals, you know, like you get the pigeon to peck at the target or whatever, what you do is you, you, you reward them randomly and not quite enough. You know, the same way that, you know, gambling can become an addiction. You know? And so we become addicted to gratification. I was reading, you know, in the Majjhima at one point and, and came across the phrase that the Buddha, you know, made equivalent to desire, contemplating gratification. That we, we're, you know, what we're going to get. How that's going to make everything okay. So the, the you know, the question for us to, to look at is how do we live with this? How do we relate to this? You know, because, because saying no, no, no and getting all you know, reactive is not going to free us. We're just, it's tar baby time, you know. 
Um, and you know, we need to depend on the complex, too complex to figure out, uh, you know, society that we live in that we depend on for our support. We're dependent on it in the same way that we're dependent on the biosphere. On the biosphere, on the relationship of the Earth to the Sun, and the Sun to the galaxy. I mean, everything depends on everything. You, you know that. Everything is embedded in everything, but we're embedded. And so how do we relate to that? Because the, the deep thing is that it doesn't produce freedom. It doesn't produce contentment. Contentment is antithetical to... I, I, was, I, I heard... So this is probably fourth degree hearsay, but in Thailand there was some consideration among in, in their parliament, because they don't have separation of church and state. So they were considering making the teaching of contentment um, to make that illegal because it wouldn't support the economy. Well, you know, these are, these, watch ourselves judge that. Notice how we judge that. It's just what people do. You know, it's not bad, it's what people do. It's what, it's what we do. Um, but I think that because we, the production side of our life, you know, the Buddha talks about right livelihood. How many Dharma talks have you heard on right livelihood? It's sort of the forgotten element of the Eightfold Path. Um, it's forgotten partly because the Buddha hardly said anything about it. He said, avoid, um, there were four or five things. Don't trade in poisons, don't trade in alcohol, don't trade in living beings. What else? Weapons. Weapons, yeah, don't trade in weapons. How would that go if you were a manager of a Safeway here? You know, not enough guidance. The Buddha was focusing on monastics mostly. So we produce our, we do what we do, if, you know, some kind, if you're a file clerk for a subsidiary of Halliburton, do you share in whatever judgment you might level on, on, on the company, you know? What if you happen to work for Rupert Murdoch somewhere in some cubby hole somewhere, you know? So there's the production side, what we do, and then there's the consumption side, the lifestyle that we build. If we demand a very heavy-duty lifestyle, real upscale, we are forcing ourselves into a heavy-duty, you know, and you get, you get a lot of stress. It's not easy to be living on the Upper East Side of New York. You know, your rent's probably $15,000 a month. Your kid's school probably costs $50,000 a year. That's before you buy the first nest. I mean, it's expensive. What is the level that we live at? There's a balance here. And because it's really right in the middle of right lifestyle, or right livelihood, I think, I think of right livelihood more these days as right lifestyle because it involves the construction of the life we live as well as the financing of it. So both sides... So it puts it right in the middle of the eightfold path. Right livelihood. It's not a one-fold path, it's an eightfold path, and the Buddha didn't leave that 
put that in there just because he eight is a nice round number. It's an essential part of our of the ethical part of our practice. The Eightfold Path is the path to the cessation of suffering. So the so right livelihood is about constructing a lifestyle, constructing a life, uh, a you know a way to live in this world that attenuates suffering for ourselves and others. And, I mean, really, right speech, right action, they're both, these are the, you know, the, the source of the precepts. Um, and they're, they're based in attenuating suffering, too. That's really what they're about. They're not about being good. You know, I'll be good, I won't buy a Hummer. But that Porsche looks awfully nice. But I guess I'll settle for a focus. Or, you know, whatever. I mean, we do those calculations. And that, these, are, these are ethical decisions, and ethical not in the sense of good or bad, or right or wrong, but in the sense of does this, does, does this, um, is this action that I'm taking attenuate or enhance dukkha? And only you can know. It doesn't matter my judgment of what you do doesn't enhance your suffering. It just, you know, makes it rougher for me if I want to, you know, do that kind of stuff. So it's a matter of, once again, we're back in the laboratory here. And a laboratory where there's no difference, there's no boundary between the inner and the outer. How do we relate to this? Well, you know, we've, we've talked about how the... how contentment is sort of anti-whatever, anti-consumerism. Contentment, which is, you know, we're talking... we're pointing at something, an internal state, that could also be upeka, equanimity. Contentment, equanimity. How do we cultivate that in the midst of what's outside? What's outside? Buddha said, notice the payoff. He talked about what he called the the gratification, the danger, and the escape when he was talking about sense pleasures. Because there is a payoff, and it's, it's delivered in a way that gets us addicted. The danger, of course, is that we won't get what we want, and we will be... Well, what happens when we don't get what we want? Anybody notice anger? Shows up a bunch. Or sadness. So we're setting ourselves up for those kinds of suffering. Anger can just make it worse. We pass on our displeasure to other people. Right lifestyle. How do we build a lifestyle that doesn't make it worse for ourselves or others? You know, the Buddha was pointing at our internal stuff, the Kalamas. He said to the Kalamas, 
Kwana said, how, you know, you come here to town and you, and you say this, and the guy was here last week and he said, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And the Buddha said, when you know in your heart that what you're about to do is for the benefit of yourself or others, then do it. And when you know it's not for the benefit of, then don't. Well, how do you know? You know? If you're a surgeon and you go to perform a procedure for the benefit of yourself and others and your patient and things go south through no, I mean, you know, the power goes out, you know, you're operating in, I mean, wherever. Things can go wrong. Things do go wrong. So he's pointing at your intention. How do you know when things, when you, what you're about to do is for the, for the benefit of yourself or others? I think he's pointing at your intention to act for the benefit of yourself or others and not to the detriment. Right intention is part of the Eightfold Path too. And of course they can't be separated. It's one, it's one path with eight facets. It's not separate. So it requires mindfulness. I think of the Eightfold Path sort of like like a basketball. You know, you can say, well, it's a sphere, it's brown, it's got thousands of these little dimples on it, and it's made of rubber, and it weighs, I don't know, a couple of pounds. And, but, you, but it's not like any one of those qualities is separate from the other. You can't say, well, I'll just take the brown. You know, you know I like the air that's inside. I'll be enough basketball for me. You know. And it's not enough, just mindfulness practice, just concentration practice. It's all of it together. So right livelihood, in order, in order to know whether something is for the benefit of yourself or others, whether your intention there is, requires mindfulness and requires your ability to, to do the lab experiment that has to do with, you know, what's going on, how, how am I relating here? What is this desire about? How does it work in me? Yeah. The danger is that you, the payoff won't come and we will suffer. And you can believe it or you can check it out. Yeah. The escape, the Buddha says, the escape is very interesting and, it's, and in a way The word that, that, we, that we use to talk about this I, is, is, uh, is really bad. I, I'm, you know, um, so I'm going to try to come at it a little bit obliquely. If, if the contentment of the Buddha cannot be achieved, cannot be dependent on external sources, and freedom from our slavery to the wanting them or not wanting them. We're slaves to them. We're slaves to them. Something pleasant shows up as a prospect, gotta get that. Something unpleasant, get rid of that. But if we're, if we're going to be free of that, we have to not take up those impulses that arise within us for wanting this, you know, when the want monster shows its head, 
spot it, mindfulness. Keep an eye on it, some stability, some concentration. Understand what's going on, some wisdom. And the intention is the intention to just let go of that impulse, not even engage it. If we try to push it away, it, you know, it's, it's tar pity time again. The word that usually is, is used is renunciation, which I find, um, I, I find it's, a, it's, it's not helpful. It's uh, uh, renunciation, how about non-addiction? Sounds better. Or um, uh, habits, sort of something we might be able to, to control. Contentment comes in not being, and freedom comes in not being a slave to those impulses that arise in us, like the moth, to not be a slave to that impulse to fly, to not be enthralled by the story that's being told, you know, that's showing up in our lives through whatever media we use. We create our own identities. My guess is that there are very few of you here who regularly read redstate.com, or maybe it's .org. You know, probably more if you read the Huffington Post and the New York Times and, you know, I mean, you read with your group. We create, we, you listen to music so that you don't even have to hear the sounds of the world around you. You know, we, we create. The Dharma practices are really designed for helping us engage this consumer world that we live in, where everything is saying, buy me, drink me, eat me, you know, whatever. Donna is, uh, undermines consumerism. You know, just and Donna, we, we, we generally translate Donna as generosity. Actually, the, the literal translation of Donna is giving. The practice is giving. What we're trying to cultivate is generosity, and there's a different Pali word for that. It's chaga. So we cultivate the habit of generosity by practicing giving. Undermines the... Uh, the impulse to get, to grasp, sila, which is, you know, the, the ethical practices, which are really um, renunciation practices. When we, sit on, when we sit to meditate, we in effect abandon or renounce or whatever, we put down other things except for sitting and watching. Now that may not be what know what happens but that's sort of our that's that's we're taking a shot you know and uh, over time over time I mean this is not uh, you know pop a pill and you know the world opens this is over time changes changes do occur but the purpose of of these of these of sila is mostly to restrain the kinds of impulses you know, that that add to our suffering. Really, that's the bottom line. 
So what the Buddha said, I teach two things or one thing? One thing? Yeah, but then he said suffering in the end is suffering, so maybe he said two. I can't, I gotta go look that up. I always think I can never remember. But basically that's, that's what the deal is, contentment, freedom. Now the end, the end of, the end of dukkha and, and the, the precepts right, that are built around right speech and right action and right lifestyle or right livelihood. They're intended to restrain those impulses that are natural, that show up in us, that are here because, you know, we're biological beings that, you know, showed up this way. Our task is to acknowledge the, uh, the wanting, to recognize our, uh, how, we're in, how, we, how we are so deeply embedded in and dependent upon the society that we keep. And then being willing to refrain from the wanting. And it's worth noticing that there's a difference between wishing and resolving. I wish I could lose weight, but that cake is so good. I wish I could, I wish I could, I wish, I wish, I wish. You know, it's, um, I, when I was in, I, I smoked cigarettes when I was in college. Good grief. You know, that's, that's hard to, uh, that's hard to stop doing. Um, as some of you may know. Uh, and I, you know, you can wish it all you want, but that doesn't do any good. There, but the moment there's a resolve, then it happens. So, you know, there, there are ways of working with this a little bit, just to notice, um, because when, just to help us notice some of the things, the ways in which we are engaged and get trapped. So, for example, we, we, with dana and chaga, we use a practice, a physical behavior practice, a, you know, something we can do to cultivate an inner state. And we can, and, and, when we refrain from certain kinds of speech or we, you know, we, we might become aware of the impulse to say certain things. Well, you can, you can, you can say, uh, sometimes for, for purposes of uh, our practice in, in my group in Davis, we have a, a, a precept support uh, group that, that meets regularly and, you know, we break right speech down into smaller bits. So like, you know, one time we were, we resolved not to engage in self-promotion. Yeah. Or not to engage in disparaging talk. If you can set up a behavioral thing, what happens is the moment there's an impulse to say, oh yeah, you like that? Well, I did that one. You go, oh, self-promotion. And you, you, all of a sudden you can see that impulse. So you can set little rules for yourself. You could say, I'm not going to spend any money before noon. And just see what happens. Oh my gosh, how could I live? Here? Watch the panic. 
if that's what shows up. You know, how could I? Well, I, I, I couldn't take that resolve because. Or, you know, I mean, you set up. Um, I'm not going to go into Starbucks this week. I, you know, whatever. I mean, you, you tailor it to your own, but to look for little things so that you can start to observe that impulse because it's that impulse to grasp, to crave, to want that we want to see. And, and how, how the, you know, the, the image in our mind of what we, we're about to get, what we want to get, what we want to accomplish, that, you know, it's, 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 it goes along with physical sensations and uh, energy levels and you know, we want to study that so we don't get trapped by the vision of I can be an enlightened being and then go on vacation. Then I won't have to worry about all this misery anymore because I'll be awake, I'll be enlightened. So, this is not about, you know, this Buddhism, the Dharma and consumerism, they're not, it's not one is good and one is bad. Consumerism is, you know, it's a philosophy that exists about the way this society works best, that's shared by a huge number of people. Whether you share it or not, doesn't matter. You know? And it underlies the structure a lot of, of what we encounter in the world. And we encounter it. And it's not like us and that. There's no boundary but the, if everything flows completely between the external and the internal. And we can learn to watch our response to that. Like, you know, the moth and the flame. We can learn to watch our reaction, our compulsion. And that's the, that's, the, that's the path to freedom. It's a mindfulness path. It's an ethical path. Ethical in the sense that it leads to the attenuation of dukkha and not its enhancement. So the freedom from this culture is, you know, the path is the Dharma. And um, so I sometimes end my, my talks in, uh, in Davis by saying, go forth and cling no more. <laughs>